Welcome to Vision of Zion. Today is May 2nd, 2023. I'm with my guest, Sean White. Hello, Sean. Hi, Craig. Today we're going to cover Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah, of course, is composed of 66 chapters. It is a discussion by Isaiah of his uh, revelations that he received from the Lord. Now, Isaiah, just to give us some background, he was a prophet around 750 B.C., he lived in the kingdom of Israel, which was the northern kingdom. Most of his comments were trying to warn the people in his kingdom that if they didn't repent, judgments were coming. And in fact, they did come. The Assyrians came in and scattered them, scattered the ten tribes, took the ten tribes north. And later, the other shoe drops with Judah, the, north, the southern kingdom, and prophets like Jeremiah and for members of the church, Lehi were preaching repentance and change, changing their ways. And then, of course, the Babylonians came in and scattered that kingdom. However, Isaiah speaks about more than just his day. He's also speaking about our day. And he uses the events of his time to cut and paste like a current event story about what's going to occur with us. Now, we know that history repeats itself if we don't learn from it. And that there are cycles in history that repeat themselves. But specifically, the Savior said that we need to know the words of Isaiah. And he continued speaking about Isaiah when he came and visited the people in the land of Bountiful, as described in the Book of Mormon. The chapter or book was the Book of Third Nephi. And, and we know we're commanded by the Savior to understand it. And then the Savior puts it in context at that time and says they are addressing future events. So we know that the book of Isaiah is about what's about to befall the Israelites, what's going to happen to them, and how the Lord is, in spite of all the tribulations they're going to go through, they are going to be gathered and remembered in the last days. So it's really a, a summary of the Lord's history with Israel from that point until the Savior comes again. So it's extremely relevant. <clears throat> Sean has worked very hard to gain insight into these books. For those of you who are listening to this in sequential order, this is not our first recording of, of the books of Isaiah or chapters of Isaiah. This is uh, the first chapter, and then it will uh, follow if you follow it sequentially once we set it up that way. And I believe that Sean, you're also going to be putting these notes together so people can read them in a sequential order? Yes, that will be almost like a book form or organized way there. I'd like to say, you know, in January after I had a major surgery where part of my lung was taken out um, due to complications a few years ago with COVID, um, I felt prompted to try to compare my near-death experience and understand the things that I saw as I walked with the Savior in the future to scripture in 2018 i tried to do this with the book of revelations and uh got some insight at that time but so this january and recovering and everything i started to try to do this with isaiah and uh, just really really eye-opening to me and brought so much peace and comfort to me as i began to understand the things that i was shown and compare them to scripture and through this, uh, I began to share them with a close group of friends. And then Craig and I decided, you know, we ought to share this with more people. 
and the insights that I'd received in connection with my near-death experience. And uh, we're going to be doing this in comparison with the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I've been reading King James, Avraham's translation, and I find it very enlightening to see because the Dead Sea Scrolls go back to a point where there's like very little mistranslation over a period of time. Um, they're more direct than the writings we have in King James. So I love this. So you receive comfort because you found that the scenes that you were visualizing or being shown were uh, matching up with the things that Isaiah talked about. Exactly. And to be able to understand not only the tragedy, but the good times too. And so we see both sides of the heartache of those that have not repented and the good side of those that have come together and uh, joined together in Christ. So for most of us who haven't had an NDE, like myself, we try and read the book of Isaiah and we try to understand what he's saying. We try to visualize it. For you, it's the opposite. You had the visualization, and then you're being prompted to look in the scriptures to try and sort through and understand and receive comfort that, okay, what I saw, I'm not, you know, these are these are confirming that. Exactly. Okay. Just a couple of things real quick, since this will be listened to by many as the first of our recordings about Isaiah. Sean referred to Abraham Gileadi's translation of the book of Isaiah. He's an extremely studious and thorough scholar, has worked on the book of Isaiah for literally decades. His translation of the book of Isaiah is phenomenal. And he also has a website called Isaiah, or named IsaiahExplained.com, where you can look for free at his translation. And he has lots of keys to understanding Isaiah I don't think any one single person has done more with this book than Abraham Gileadi. And then the Dead Sea Scrolls, of course, were discovered in the 1940s and went through a translation process through the, uh, I think, the 50s and 60s and on. And many, many copies of the book of Isaiah were located in those scrolls, I think over 50, extremely consistent with one another and consistent with the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the New Testament, excuse me, Old Testament, that occurred around 300 BC. It was uh, written in Greek to put into the Library of Alexandria. And so that had been our oldest copy for a long time until they, uh, I guess, discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we're quoting from in these verses. So <clears throat> in later episodes, you'll hear us quote from Gileadis, translation but we've decided to go to the dead sea scrolls it's interesting because the source that i have on the dead sea scrolls covers all the scrolls that are known to date and there are very slight variations here and there which i found interesting because they do help amplify the message or clarify the message that's being given okay so isaiah chapter one is god speaking to isaiah explaining why this period of tribulation needs to come at this time. And by this time, we're talking about in latter the latter days. Verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. 
As a prophet, Isaiah was given vision concerning Judea and Jerusalem. God's plan to return us to his presence is not a strange or new one. We have the scriptures and prophets to guide us back to his presence. The adversary will do everything he can to deceive us, even the very elect. The pattern of each dispensation follows a similar cycle. So concerning going back to Judah and Jerusalem, we're talking about the two promised lands, the promised land of Israel and the new promised land or the new Jerusalem in America. And so we can see the difference. Many times Isaiah will use code names, as we'll later describe, like Judah and Jerusalem, to get his message through and not have it obliterated or things by us in modern day. I find this interesting that he's seeing a vision of, or yeah, of what's happening in Judah, because as <clears throat> I understand it, Isaiah was a citizen of it, of the nation of Israel to the north. But here he is right off the bat talking about what's going to happen down in the south or southern kingdom. I'll read verses two through six. Hear heavens and listen, earth, for Yahweh has spoken. Quote, I have nursed and brought up children and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his owner and the donkey his master's crib, but Israel doesn't know and my people don't consider. Close quote. Ah, ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with iniquity offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken Yahweh. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are estranged and backward. Why should you be beaten more that you revolt more and more? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. Wounds, welts, and open sores. They haven't been closed neither bandaged, neither soothed with oil. In this verse, God is saying, <clears throat> I have brought up my children. They have rebelled against me, meaning us earth children. An ox knows who feeds him and puts him to work. The donkey knows where his home is. And yet the children of God placed here on earth have rebelled and forgotten who placed them here. Then the Lord goes on to say, why should I put you through more trial and tribulation when it only will bring more rebellion by you? The head represents the leaders. Being sick represents the leaders not thinking clearly. The heart is faint represents us as we are tired of second-guessing what is right and what is wrong from our leaders. The sole of the foot to our head, there is no soundness. We as a people have had no refuge from these lies and falsehoods around us. Everything is coming at us so fast that there's little time to pray and decipher what is true, thus allowing us to heal. And today, as we look out in our world, things are coming so much faster. If we look back onto the 50s or 60s and the safety that we felt in our neighborhoods, the things that we saw on TV seem so minuscule to the pulling away of God from God today. The corruption, the wickedness, everything has sped up so dramatically, which is exactly reminiscent of this verse. And we have forgotten God, and he is asking us, what could I have done more here? Which will be covered again and again throughout Isaiah here. What could I do to turn you back to me? 
that's really the key to all of Isaiah right there. What a tough balancing act for God to um, produce righteous posterity, help us through this time of trial and uh, this mortal life. And how much does he, you know, how much does he adjust it? If he doesn't do anything, then we destroy ourselves. If he does too much, people rebel. He's trying to find that sweet spot, isn't he, where he can do just enough to get us to remember our ways and come to him. And what a tough thing. It ends up separating the good and the bad. And uh, still, all the time, all along the way, is the path to go to the Savior, use the atonement, and come back to him. Next verse 7. Your country is <clears throat> desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence, and they have brought desolation upon it as overthrown by strangers. Your country is desolate. We have not yet seen this unfold in America, but we can see this happening in Ukraine right now. Strangers devour your land in your presence. We have seen squatters move into homes, rewriting the titles of our homes at this time taking possession of our homes. People will flee in America as they have done in Ukraine from the cities, and we will be pushed out of our land by the king of Assyria, just as Ukraine is being pushed out. So we can see there's a microchasm or thing, like similitude of what's happening in other places that it's going to happen to us right now in our day. And uh, it's going to just get worse but i love that he's giving us a little idea of how to prepare and what to prepare for if we will just listen we can see it around the world verse 8 the daughter of zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard and like a hut in a field of melons like a besieged city the daughter of zion refers to god's children his zion-like people whom can hear his voice he looks upon his daughter, or remnant, and thinks about his covenant to protect them. The reference to the hut in the melon field refers to a physical watchman to stand guard over them in their hour of need. The city under besiege refers to chaos and destruction going on around them, as they, God's children, that can hear him, are protected by righteous watchmen. I love that we have a verse right here referring to hope and referring to those of us that have strived to listen to Zion, to listen to God, I should say, and gather like a Zion people. I like the word shelter. Yeah. We'll be sheltered. Verse 9, unless Yahweh of armies had left us to a very small remnant, we would have been as Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah very telling verse, if it hadn't been for the efforts of Yahweh of armies to bring forth righteous remnant, this earth would have been destroyed as Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. So secretly and quietly, where we can't see, we have Yahweh of armies, the same person that fought and watched over God's armies in heaven, bringing about change here on earth so that we're not destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah and brought back to our Heavenly Father's hand. 
And of course, the Lord required that Abraham, and I guess Lot was the only other one who followed Abraham and his family. It took They had to leave Sodom and Gomorrah because destruction was coming. Even Noah had to leave with his few family because destruction was coming. It's a pattern. <laughs> it's a pattern in the Bible. It's a pattern in the Book of Mormon. You need to leave sometimes. Let's read verses 10 through 17 now. Hear Yahweh's word, you rulers of Sodom, and listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says Yahweh? I have had enough of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed animals. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of male goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this at your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I can't stand the evil assemblies. My soul hates your new moons and your appointed feasts. They are a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread forth your hands, I will conceal my eyes from you. Though you pray at length, I will not hear. Your hands are filled with blood. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood, your fingers with iniquity. Learn to do well. Seek justice. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Here Elohim is saying to the wicked leaders of the world, What are these sacrifices to me? You repeat prayers over and over, but in your heart, they are words without meaning. All of the things that you are doing in my name are in vain. You have lost the meaning of the words in your heart. Why do you continue with your vain repetitions? Even though this people regularly attend church, they have forgotten to act Christ-like Monday through Saturday. When you cry out to me, God... I will hide from you because you act so unchristlike through the week. Repent and seek out the poor among you. Seek out justice. Now here we have completely lost the original meaning of justice. The first thing we think of concerning justice is penalty. The word justice is originally used to make things right with those whom we interact with, to look out and try to balance things and make them right before penalty occurs. But we now have reversed that. We look out for the widows and seek to ease their burdens. If we enacted the ministering program as President Nelson asked us to in April of 2018, we would fulfill what God is asking us to do in this verse, and thus allowing God to come back in to answer and hear the words of our prayers more clearly. Thank you. Verses 18 through 20. Come now and let's reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken it. Throughout all this chastisement that we just received in doing things wrong, Christ wants us to know that the atonement is still available to us if we are willing and obedient. 
We can have the protection during the upcoming tribulation if we are willing and obedient to Christ's words, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken it. When this phrase occurs, when Yahweh has spoken it, it's a sealed promise that will be carried out. It's like it is unwavering promise, and I love that. So my daughter is serving a mission right now, and it was a couple of weeks ago that she received uh, an answer in prayer while struggling, and the Spirit told her that the key to success as a missionary is to never give up. No matter how you're being treated, no matter what people say to you, the key is to just keep going. Because as you know, as a missionary, you receive a lot of opposition. Um, people can be cruel and mean and not under, or misunderstanding your purpose and motives. It's, a, it's tough. And I went through it. But last night we got her on the, she, we had a chance to talk to her on Monday nights when she's done it with all of her preparation day activities. And she was really upset. Um, they'd gone to a man's house and uh, I think we called it Bible bashing. And they just, you know, he just tore into these two young, young women. One of the things he said that really bothered her <clears throat> he accused them of breaking all of the commandments. You know, have you ever lusted? So you've therefore you've committed adultery in your heart. Have you ever done this? Have you ever done that? And he went through all the Ten Commandments with them and uh, told them that they were going to go to hell. And he was going to pray for them, even though he admitted he'd also broken all of the Ten Commandments. And the point of this was they're really... What was upsetting was not just the experience, but for me, was upsetting is this is a man who offered and offered them no real hope, <laughs> just yelled at them, uh, talked mean to them, convinced, convicted them. And in reading this today, it makes me think about that, because if all the Lord did is condemn everybody for what they're doing, which was very bad, it would have been. A hopeless situation and so to that extent i agree with him so i told her i said what about repentance because everything he said is true where we all we all break the commandments none of us are perfect and we we do we are definitely mortal and we do wrong things even though i don't think that thinking a thought is the same as doing a, doing something but that's that's another another um story but the point of it is um there was no hope. It was a message of hopelessness. And here, to have the Lord say, your sins could be as red as scarlet, and yet it can be white as wool. That's, if we don't, you know, glory in that call to repentance and how clean we can become in spite of all of the uh, things that they were doing, it's not a hopeless message. They're not beyond hope. They're not beyond help. We aren't beyond help. The Lord is saying, you can be clean. But there is a process to it, of course. So I just love the, the ver that verse. And in the context of my daughter and people who you get know. locked into the sin side and forget about the escape that the atonement of Jesus Christ provides us. 
you know, the things that I've seen in the future as we begin to gather as believers in Christ. It's not just one religion that gathers, it's many religions. And we. it takes a while for us to honor each other as believers in Christ. And that's where we really need to, you know, soften our hearts and come more into Christ that and honor everyone that believes in Christ and uh, has put them Christ in their lives to guide them. And it will take us a little while to soften our hearts towards everyone and honor everyone. You know, I was reading this morning in part to help my daughter answer some of the questions that this man was raising. I went through the history of the Bible, went through history of the organization of the New Testament and some other things. And one of the things I came across looking at the timeline or chronology of Christianity was the year 1054 when the Greek Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church split. And frankly, the split was over what I think most of us would consider to be fairly minor points of doctrine, fairly minor. And it caused a huge schism and two different, and people say it was really political more than it was a religious, uh, you know, more of an excuse to split off, but it, it really isn't the point. The point is, is as I see Christians come under attack, Sean, today, I'm watching us, we're more like uh, all clinging to the same raft, if you know what I mean. I'm seeing people reaching out to one another because all of religion is under attack right now. Anybody who believes in God uh, is coming under attack. And so I think that this is foreseen uh, through circumstance, uh, all of us, to take a broader look around us at other religions and find out what we have in common and how we can work together to enrich the, the lives of our congregations and people around us. And so I'm watching us kind of, I, I picture it as a raft, you know, this the storm is blowing and we're all kind of clinging to the same raft and realizing, wait a second, we're all kind of in this together. And it's, I think it's purposeful. You know, the most valuable tool that Satan or Lucifer has in his toolbox is a wedge. Many people often describe it as a golden wedge because when nothing else works to forward his plan, he can put a wedge in and divide us, whether it be a husband and wife or brother and sister, politically speaking, the Republicans, the Democrats, the this church or that church, the greatest tool he has is to divide. And through dividing us, he believes he can conquer us. And we do really start to fall apart when we become divided. Yeah, the wedge is very powerful. And the one of the biggest wedges today that he's using is fear, right? Yeah. And this, this gentleman talking to my daughter and her companion, he was trying to instill fear. And uh, that's what we see being used today. We use all kinds of fear that completely contradicts the, what the Lord is saying in the scriptures that's going to happen in the future. But fear. Um, it's uh, that's one of the wedges one of the latest that's been pulled out uh for for decades i can go through the political use of fear and how they use it to gain power over us but it is it is uh it is a wedge in, sean in my walk with the savior as we looked at the earth and the people of the earth at this time we i could see that uh lucifer can never take our agency away from us but he can do it when we hand it over to him. And the way we hand it over to him is because of great fear. And we just say, take control. We don't want to deal with this anymore. 
And that's how he believes he can win and take the place of Elohim and rule this earth. And all I want to add to that, Sean, is that, yes, we can give, give into that fear, but we can also become aware and take it back Yes, through our faith in Christ, because there are many people who have given into fear and are waking up and saying, oh my gosh, I was lied to, I was in the wrong camp, I was in the wrong mindset, and we can still change. Uh, even those who you know, made a pact with the devil, so to speak. I've read accounts of people that realized they were completely wrong and they were able to break that um, pact. The Savior's power overcomes all of it. So there's still a chance. So if you find yourself in the wrong boat, jump out of that boat and get back on track with, with the Savior. Every person I've heard who has jumped track and come back, they all give it back to Jesus Christ, who when they realized who he was and what he did, and understood salvation and called upon him and repented, they had a complete turnaround. Uh, one of the examples yeah. I'm thinking of is a person who went through, <clears throat> um, a man who wanted to be a woman and did all the things to do that. And then years later, uh, found that it wasn't fulfilling, lost his family and found Christ. And then, completely understood what the mistakes were and why that was the wrong choice for him and how he made his way back. And now as an extreme advocate, trying to discourage people from encouraging our uh, children to, to do these kinds of acts. So we will be one of the biggest things right now in front of us is secretly and quietly our government and the first beast that we'll be talking about in more detail later. Will is seeking to take away religion because with religion there, we still have hope, we still have faith, and they cannot control us as long as we still have religion. Religion, belief in God, it's the only real resistance that will be feared in the long run. Yeah. Let's go to verse verses 21 through 23. How the faithful city has become a prostitute. She was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They don't judge the fatherless, neither does the cause of the widow come to them. The once faithful city, and we can think of this as many cities, has sold herself for personal gain at any cost. Getting gain through murdering others is now commonplace. Things that were once precious to you are now scum. Everything within the big cities has been focused on getting ahead in the same manner that Cain chose, as he sought to have more power than Abel. We'll also see later on that this story in throughout the heavens and what I saw in the pre-existence and the pattern of other earths is repeated over and over again in seeking to get gain through killing someone or through taking advantage of others and using the same principles. 
we'll talk more about that another time <clears throat> how Brother Nilby breaks down what Cain did and how that plays out in the future generations. Verses 24 and 25. Therefore, the Lord Yahweh of armies, the mighty one of Israel, says, quote, Ah, I will get relief from my adversaries and avenge myself on my enemies. And I will turn my hand on you. Thoroughly purge away your dross, or dross, and will take away all your tin. Yahweh of armies is frustrated at the people who caused the people to fall. Purging dross relates to removing impurities from silver or gold as they're being processed. Silver or gold will be dull and unattractive as long as there are impurities in the metal. So in essence, Yahweh of armies is saying, I will take away all the impure people. The tin referred to here is an alloy made to make bronze. Bronze looks nice, but is much less valuable than gold. There is a difference to tin compares impure people to pure people, and God will remove the impure or fake people or fake things that dull and are like uh, false gold because really good brass appears to be uh appears to be gold and part of that is using tin so that you don't have corrosion in making brass so though our sins be as scarlet they'll be as white as snow but <laughs> there's a process to it uh it doesn't happen automatically um there's a he's going to work with us and cleanse us uh individually and as a people correct yes verse 26 I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, a faithful town. Yahweh of armies will restore the law and the teachers of God's word as in the beginning with Adam and Eve's posterity. Then the Lord will call it a city of righteousness. This idea is talked about more in chapter 2. We will have to sometime go back and look at the kind of city that uh, Enoch was able to set up during his lifetime before they were taken up into heaven. There's some good hints there, too. Yes. Verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her converts with righteousness. So, yes, the wicked will be punished for their sin, but more importantly, they have the opportunity to repent and forsake their ways and become righteous. And um, I just love this once again, because here's a path for those that have not followed God's word to come back. When you talked earlier about justice and what it meant, I want to make a comment that fits with this too. When I took a Jewish philosophy class from Truman Madsen, uh, it was a great class. And one of the things he told us about was the operation of Jewish courts versus what I've learned about as an attorney. Uh, our system is rather adversarial, although things have changed dramatically in 30 years, but it's a very adversarial system. You have uh, two lawyers on the opposite sides of an issue, and you have a judge or a jury or both making rulings of law and a fact about a case. But he told us that in, in Judaism, the judge was trying to seek reconciliation between the parties. And I found that to be a much more uh, favorable way to approach things than 
the adversarial approach, a reconciliatory approach, <clears throat> which incorporates your description of justice that you described earlier in the podcast. And I said it's changed in our profession because mediation became and has become a very big part of the legal profession. Alternate dispute resolution where we try to get together with and find some common ground and get away from the polar opposites and try and find a way to resolve cases. And in fact, uh, an increasingly number of cases, especially civil cases, are now resolved through more of a conciliatory process. I'd say 80%, 90% of the cases get resolved through a mediator or an agreed upon arbitrator. But mediation, the trying trying to see both sides of it and come together and make concessions to get to a final outcome is uh, this has been a big part of our profession since I became an attorney. But one of the, um, one of the things from my near death experience was so frustrating when I came back was to see how everything operated somewhat upside down and justice on the other side. They're first focused on the victim and then about stopping it and then restoring the reputation. But everything is <clears throat> focused on victim first and not on today we see focused on reputation and stopping it and very little is given to the victim in most cases i'm thinking of uh, when child abuse happens and those type of things i agree at least and all i would say is at least those are the stories that get the headlines um it does seem to a person reading the headlines that uh, there's more concern especially in certain areas of our country where mm -hmm. uh, the um, people that are committing the crimes are, are getting more uh, understanding than the, than the people that are victims. Absolutely right. Verse 28, but the destruction of transgressors and sinners shall be together and those who forsake Yahweh shall be consumed. For these are the unrepentant and forsake Christ. They will be consumed in the first stages of these years of tribulation, the wicked will kill the more wicked. Then after the midpoint, the servant Isaiah describes has given power to destroy the wicked, all in an effort to meet the Savior face to face, as Moses, Mahanari Moriankar, Joseph Smith, Ezra, and many more did. It's so important that we we have to ourselves go through this process to purify ourselves, to walk before the Savior in everyday life and just visit with Him, to talk with Him, to counsel with Him. And what a great comfort this will be to us to have this among us. But it's going to be a process, and we will do it faster than any other generation has done. I mean, Enoch had 364 years or so to process and help his people me that Moses wanted his people to come with him to the top and meet God face to face, but they refused to and said, no, you go. And now there is no choice. Either you're going to clean up your act or you're going to be taken away. <laughs> There's no in-between at this point in their life here. Okay. Let's go to uh, Isaiah 29. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired, and you shall be confounded for the gardens that you have chosen. So God's people will be ashamed. They wanted 
many people have wanted to be rich like worldly people that we see and that we idolize them. The oaks represent a type of person that stands tall, who seems immovable. Um, in this phrase, confounded for the gardens, you have chosen relates to the things you once thought would bring you peace in your life, but really are unimportant. We will find peace in new gardens with Christ and new ways. And so we are kind of confounded that the things that we think have peace are actually could be pured, more pure and more peaceful. You know, in every dramatic born-again experience we can read about in the scriptures, there's a complete flip-flop where people realize, oh my goodness, what I was chasing was bad or irrelevant and unimportant. Think of Alma, the younger, uh, Paul, a couple of dramatic examples. Verse 30, For you shall be as an oak whose leaf fades, and as a garden that has no water. To those who have aspired to things of this world and to be prideful around the people we associate with, this will all fade away like a dying leaf on an oak tree or a garden with no water. We crumble and fall apart because they're not grounded in the Savior. They don't. We don't have sure footings with the Savior and faith and how to act like Christ. And finally, verse 31. Your strong will be like tinder and your work like a spark. They will both burn together and no one will quench them. The strong, prideful, arrogant people will be as tinder, you know, the, the kindling for a fire. And our works of righteousness will act like a spark and burn down all those things that brought unrighteousness and power to the unrighteous leaders over us. And we will see this again throughout Isaiah as we establish more and more Christ-like people building a Zion community, that it will be like a, the spark that burns down more wickedness that exposes more wickedness around us and allows us to see what's really been going on. And they won't feel comfortable being around us and separate from us. It's interesting that there's one type of fire that the Lord offers, which is to, to purify and cleanse us. And then there's the kind that burns and cannot be quenched. So there must be some chiastic comparison there, maybe, yeah. between those two extremes. We want to be the ones that are scarlet, looking to be cleansed through the refiner fire of removing the dross. The that's all this. That's really the summary of this life's purpose. We come down. We obtain a body. We are carnal and sensual in nature. We have to overcome that and, and become quickened on the inner self, the spiritual self, and learn to appreciate the good and to reject the bad. Uh, I'll tell a quick story here that might fit into this a little bit. There's an article written by a professor that I took a class from in philosophy. His name is Dennis Rasmussen. He wrote an article for, I think, BYU Studies. It's called An Elder Among the Rabbis or among the Jews, and he had a chance to go back and 
go to the Brandeis Institute, where he met many Jewish scholars and leaders. He describes why he was there, but they had these breakout sessions, and he was in a session, and one of the people knew he was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, or a Mormon, and put him on the spot more than once during his uh, time with them. And they're talking about things. And at one point he brought up this verse from first Nephi, where he says, Adam fell that man might be and men are that they might have joy. And this scholar rabbi, I can't remember exactly which, maybe both, he was just stunned by that little verse and had him repeat it to the entire group at lunch because it synthesizes everything about this life. Adam fell, which means became mortal. We were able to come to the earth because if left in the garden, he and Eve could not have had posterity. So they partook. They fell, we became, say, the Savior took care of the uh, transgressions of Adam. We were not born under the sin of Adam, thanks to the atonement of Jesus Christ. We're only responsible for our own sins, our own mistakes, and the path has been laid out since Adam to now. And it's a very simple path, Sean, isn't it? Very simple. It is. And the Savior reinforced that when he came to the Americas and said, Faith, repentance, baptism, and the Holy Ghost. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anything more or less is not of me. That is the essence of it all. And yet here we are, when sin gets involved, things become complicated. I mean, the things we're dealing with in the legislatures, in our in our laws, everything becomes very complicated. We want to try and accommodate sin and not follow the Spirit and follow the commandments. It gets very, very complicated when you try and balance the secular concerns of people with, you know, with agency and, and the gospel. And it just becomes confusing and it becomes difficult. But the way is very clear. And Isaiah is reminding us that he doesn't care about all this stuff, all the things we add on. If you don't have your heart right, these uh, assemblies, these offerings, these feasts—they mean they're meaningless, and we have to get back to the heart of the gospel. And that's what Jesus did so beautifully when he came to the earth. Another thing I learned from uh, uh, Brother Madsen was uh, when the Jews study the Talmud, as I understand it, and I think I've even seen it when I went to the library at BYU, Harold Bailey Library, they would take a verse. Uh, of scripture in the old testament and they would have commentary from all the rabbis all around the edge of the page and so when they would study the when they studied the talmud which i think takes seven years to go through it all they're looking at the comments of all these really wise people who have looked these verses over and one of the things that i learned in this class was that what the jews do is they will build a hedge around the law so if the law says keep the sabbath day holy then what does work mean right? We don't want to work. So it became reduced to if you walk through a field and you knock off kernels from the, from the corn or the, you know, the wheat, the grain, then that's working. 
If you walk so many steps, that's working. And so the hedge, this is what they call the hedge. And what their belief was, if you live the hedge, then you never would be tempted to break the actual law. And so this was called a hedge around the law. And what Christ came to say was, there's been so many things put in place like that, that the law is not living anymore. It's been reduced to these practices and patterns. And who was the law made for? Was it made for man or was man made for the law? And the way it, it got reversed. And so Jesus was not dismantling the law of Moses. He was trying to get rid of all the things that had built up over centuries that um, were taking life or sucking life out of out of it. And, you know, he was not liked for it. Uh, he was yeah. uh, obviously... <laughs> Put to death for those kinds of things so um it's a very simple thing we we have a tendency to add to it but when you break it all down it's it's very straightforward yeah exactly i, I once growing up i there was a fellow who i very much admired and i worked in bees from the time i was 12 until i was 18 and still continued to have bees but in a commercial operation like that uh, from 12 till I was 18, but one day I stopped the truck and we usually were running out to the truck to get the most done that we possibly could and put his hands down. He says, I want you boys to look around you right here. And we could see the buds on the trees were just forming. The grass was just coming up and the trees knew when to bloom. We didn't have to tell them when to bloom or anything, but he says, the gospel is just like this. And you will notice throughout your life that when it's something with the gospel, it is so basic and so simple, so natural. And that's when you know you're on track or you've got things right. It'll be just like Mother Nature trying to bloom, trying to grow and cover herself. Well, thank you, Sean. And we'll close with that. This has been another edition of Vision of Zion. Stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks for listening. Thank you.